You're back. I'm so glad you're here at Don't Take My Word For It. My name is Vasti, and this is a weekly podcast. The goal of the podcast is to encourage you, motivate you, and challenge you to grow up in your personal walk with God, specifically tackling studying God's Word. For a very long time, I heard a lot of people say the importance of reading God's Word, knowing it, and treasuring it in your heart. Knowing stuff doesn't mean you understand it and you have wisdom, but at least you know it. For a very long time, I was content with just listening to someone else expound on what they studied. And I very rarely studied myself. And when I did, I didn't have the right tools to do it. And so I would get stuck, and I would get disappointed or discouraged, and I wouldn't follow through. But I would say that one of the most important things is that at least sometimes of the week, you have to have a personal time, personal time where you will study the word that requires a little more effort than just reading and means meditating on a small piece of scripture and either looking up definitions or looking at a concordance or or looking at the same story in another gospel and seeing what it says there and just getting a little bit more out of that. Maybe reading a commentary by a person that's respectable. Um, just, just things like that that will enrich what you, you you have just read it, but maybe you don't fully understand it. And it may take a couple of times of you reading the same thing to get it. There are some things I've tried to study, and I still have a question mark on it. Um, it's okay to not understand. The disciples followed Jesus, and they didn't understand a lot of stuff. The point is that they were purposeful and we have to be purposeful too and that means we have to have some effort to follow it so that is the point of this podcast and i am so happy you're back because today we're gonna actually talk about something similar to what i was just saying the cost of discipleship as we dive in today i want to ask you to take a few seconds to pray before we tackle what we're going to read it takes the right kind of perspective and mindset and sometimes we need to uh, ask god to prepare our heart to hear something that might initially shock us but it's something god wants to work on us or just have us think about and so take a second um pause this and pray and ask god to speak to your heart and whatever uh whatever he wants to tackle specifically with you he has a very personal way of doing things and what might stand out for somebody else and god may speak to their heart silently uh by seeing something uh, a certain word might trigger a memory and might attach to something god has been dealing with you uh there's just god is very creative and we don't want to put limits on what he's doing but we also don't want to come with an attitude that could potentially ruin uh what we could learn. I find myself having to do that often with certain titles that I know I'm going to read um, because I know they're going to bother me. But having something bother us is good. It means that God is pointing the finger at something we need to work on. And instead of seeing it as something we can get offended by, uh, we need to see it as God's love. So take that second. Okay, now that you prayed, 
let's read today's reference, which is in Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. And it says this, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. <laughs> I laugh because this reminds me of many times when we sing songs about surrender. Especially when we're younger and we have no clue what that means. Anyway. Verse 58, and Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes and birds in their air, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me or allow me to first go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but thou go and preach the kingdom of God. And another man also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home, at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's why I ask you to pray. Because this is a tough one to to sit in, because it, it requires us to evaluate how much are we willing to do for discipleship? And and honestly, the first thing that probably stood out to you is you think that Jesus' response, especially to man number two and man number three, were very harsh because after all, or maybe even ridiculous, because they were just trying to take care of their responsibilities. They are the men of households. They need certain things they have to do. think of discipleship in a more translatable way for the modern times. I was thinking of a few disciplines that came to my mind. Now, the first one I thought of was ballerinas. Uh, and I had to look this up because I don't really understand the whole world of ballerinas. I think people think they just kind of show up and do twirls and master the twirling and it's done and then they get shows. I mean, this is a whole lifetime of every single day you live, breathe, and work ballet. If you're going to be truly dedicated, like your job, your only job is being a ballerina. Not that you just know how to do certain techniques in ballet. That doesn't make you a ballerina by trade. So this is what I mean. I had to look up those that become or became prima ballerinas. What was their life trajectory like? And this kind of shocked me because uh, I didn't expect these ages. Um, prima ballerinas, on average, start at the age of three. Crazy. And at the age of 11, they're already doing full-time ballet work. Um, that's to say they're part of some boarding class school or something of a similar um, format. And by the age of 15... They have already made it to that title. That's the average that I found. Looking online, you know, I'm not sure if online is the most trustworthy source, but I don't know any ballerinas I can ask. Now, regular ballerinas that um, join some sort of uh, group or company that hires them, 
they on average i think all of them have gone to some sort of boarding school in ballet and i don't know how you apply to those i'm sure you do some sort of um what are those called uh it's not initiation you a tryout and then they assess your ability and technique and out of i don't know how many you might get picked and then you start your way from the bottom all the way up their daily life looks like lots of stretches and warm up one or two classes on technique for a few hours and then the rest of the day is rehearsals and getting ready for whatever the the company or the school is doing as a performance uh and that's every day they also have special diets they have to follow and if you've seen movies you've seen how horrible the feet can get when they're working on their point shoes um and just how beat up physically and and exhausting it can be because they make it look really easy but it's a really demanding physically demanding thing they also have to take care of their ligaments if they get hurt they have to be extremely careful because that could completely uh block their path to continue to do the part that they're playing because there's a technique they won't be able to do correctly and it will be plainly visible to those who are directing that you can no longer perform that part and if you've worked for months you don't want that to happen um so that's kind of a brutal uh cost for someone that is a disciple a student of the art and technique of ballet ballet dancing craftsmen I'm thinking more of a wood woods craftsmen, uh, woodworkers. Uh, these people can learn their techniques, the basics, between a few months to two or three years. Uh, but most of them do not consider themselves highly skilled until they have practiced those for seven years. That's the average. So these people dedicate to the study and the practice of the skill of woodworking, different using different angles, using different equipment, safety. If they want to use the technique of not having any screws but still creating some sort of furniture, there is a technique for that. And uh, different types of sanding porosity uh, for the uh, different kinds of wood, how to cut according to the grind of the wood or the direction of the... I can't remember what the word is in English, but... Um, you know, the fibers of the wood, you have to cut in a certain way and not go against that, that line of directionality that's already in the wood or you're going to encounter a lot of problems. Um, and a lot of those are basics, but even though you know them at first, you have to practice them for a while until you are considered to be skilled at them. And that's what it takes to be a good craftsman. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about something I'm slightly more familiar with, which is something that requires specialty in terms of like graduate school. So let's say that you wanted to become a researcher um, or, uh, you know, you're really interested in, in neuroscience. So that could be either getting a master's or a Ph.D., 
So for that, that means that you had four years of college. If you were able to do it in four years and you didn't have any roadblocks, which is not possible for a lot of people. But let's say you do it in four years. After that, you should have had some sort of experience with research either in the summer or during your third and fourth year. Because anymore, getting into grad school for the purposes of science and certain other uh, lines of study, you must have had some experience. And I don't know how it is for law and some of these other areas, but I know in science, you must have had some research experience in a lab outside of class uh, to even be considered. So that was something I didn't have and I had to take some time to work while I was doing research and then apply for grad school. After you get in, whether that if it's a master's, it'll take you uh, a year or two, depending on the project you get and who your mentor is, what school you're at. Uh, if you go, if you're in science, sometimes you can skip straight to the PhD, depending on the branch of study you're in, and of course availability and space. Uh, funding whoever you pick as your mentor, and that sort of thing. If you do a PhD, some people have been able to do it in two years. I think that's sort of an anomaly. Usually it takes about four years, four to six years. So let's add four college years, four to six years of PhD. Um, so an average, you're looking at between six to ten years of study, and when you're done with your master's or your PhD, whatever it might be, uh, you're not considered to be very skilled. Uh, you're you're considered to be somebody that is very very knowledgeable in your specific area where your project was performed, but you're not in the scientific community viewed as somebody that is. Uh, ready to work on their own, which was kind of a shock to me when I finished because I thought I would be considered uh, a full, completed, polished scientist. And that's not true. Once you get to that point, if you want to be able to teach or be a researcher, you have to prove that you can do that. And so there's these programs called postgraduate programs where you get on a little bit more responsibility, you teach at the same time, and you sort of prove that you can do that on your own without somebody approving your ideas and fixing your the issues that you didn't see yourself. And this is a highly important process in the path of somebody that wants to do research and be the person putting the ideas together. Um, so that's... A lot of time and effort put into that. A warning for those of you that are thinking to go that trajectory, especially when you're getting to the point of looking at whether you're going to do postgraduate work or not. Please, please, please talk to anybody else that is currently doing it in your organization and ask them how long it's taking and if they have been promised any positions yet. Because anymore, they're so... So little vacancies that it doesn't happen in the time that you think it will. And I, I know a few people that have been doing it for many years and they've, they are no longer, uh, they're no closer to their goal. So that's just a little uh, information there for you.
But that's what it takes. That's what it costs to be a disciple, a student of that branch of science. And after you quote unquote make it, you still have to learn every day some of the new things that are coming out. Another one I think could um, be popular with whoever is listening is thinking of if you're down the track of maybe wanting to become a, vis- a physician or doctor. Um, you do four years of college. You, uh, And I think some programs are pre-med and they kind of prepare you for the MCAT. And when you're done, you, you basically have the whole package. But not everybody can do that. So let's just assume you did four years, then you took your MCAT maybe one or two times. You got the score that you thought you wanted. You evaluate what school you're going to, you apply. Maybe you get accepted, maybe you get rejected. You try a second one, you get in. Once you're in med school, you do your uh, your four years there. Each year has a step test, I believe, that you have to pass. Um, and then by the end you are considered to have an MD, but you have to do a residency. And I don't know how long residencies are. Um, It's, at least I think it's a year. Um, And I believe they request what area they want to practice in, and they could get their match and they could not. Um, I'm not for sure on the details of that, and you you can look it up if you're interested. But once they're done with that, if they do get the match that they wanted, uh, if they want to do a specialty, that requires extra years. So you're looking in between, you know, 10 to 15 years, depending on if you want to do a specialty or just be a family physician. Um, it all really depends uh, on a lot of variables there, but... Again, a lot of cost, stress, uh, investment mentally and emotionally um, to get to this end goal. Why? Because you have a passion and you are a student of the art and understanding of medicine and the subspecialties that you're interested in. So why is it that we can view those costs of the modern things, the tangible things, and think, yeah, you know, that that's, that makes sense in my mind, but it's, it costs a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice to become that. But it's so difficult to feel the same way about discipleship and following Jesus. And I think that's just part of human understanding. We don't really <laughs> grasp the spiritual things, we don't understand them, and I don't know that we ever will fully. Uh, but true discipleship and following Jesus has a high cost. And like I said, I don't think I fully understand it. Uh, I'm doing my best at this moment to be a follower of Jesus, how that looks in my life right now. I can't do much. Because I'm bound by a physical problem that I have at the moment. And I've been battling for months. Uh, But what I feel in my heart that God is telling me to do, I'm being obedient and acting on it. And that's part of being a follower of Christ. But it's difficult for us to hear some of these responses that Jesus is giving these men. 
because we think that they are unfair. After all, the Bible is full of examples where it's clear that taking care of your own affairs and being responsible and taking care of your family and husbands loving their wives and children obeying their parents and uh, looking to your own business and having your house in order. These are all principles that the Bible abides by. So why do these comments come across to us like, oh God, Jesus is just telling these guys to let their business loose and if they don't do what he's telling them to do now, then they're not fit for anything. And again, we have to use wisdom and discernment and pray about these things because even though the language might seem shocking, I would suggest to you that that is not what Jesus is saying to these men at all. The first one, the first man that Jesus is talking to, in Luke, it just says a certain man came to him and said he was going to follow him wherever he goes. If you see the story in Matthew, it specifies that the person that came to talk to Jesus was a scribe. Scribes were known to be very studious and many times they felt like because they had this certain title or these knowledgeable points that there was some sort of position that they were going to get. And maybe with that came some commodities. And I believe that for that reason, and this isn't just, I had to talk to my mom and a few, and uh, you know, consult a few other commentaries to get all these thoughts straight in my mind. And I don't have all the answers, but this might help you kind of walk through these verses. It is very possible that the reason God or Jesus starts talking about foxes have their own lair, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay on. He was basically saying, hey, if you want to follow me, no problem, but don't expect that there's going to be any commodity and that you're going to have this special title or anything, because that's not how it works when you follow me. Okay. Fair. That one's easier to understand. The second one gets a little dicey. On the second one, <laughs> we start looking at a man that says, or actually Jesus tells him, follow me. And he says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first bury my father. Two ways that we can view this. Maybe the man was saying, hey, my dad is old, so let me... Wait out until he dies so I can bury him in peace. And then, after I take care of that affair, I will follow you. But maybe that wasn't what was going on. Maybe the man was saying, uh, you know, my, my father just died recently. Uh, and in those days, you would bury the person either the same day or within the next two days. Because they're in the Mediterranean. They don't embalm their dead. Um... That's not a Jewish custom as far as I know. They would just bury them and put them inside some sort of cave or something that's enclosed. Um, there was a ceremony where they would put it on, put the person on a pallet and kind of walk around the city mourning everybody together. And then they would put them in the chosen place to bury, bury the person and then there would be a time of mourning. And I am not a scholar, but as far as I understand it, uh, 
most Jewish funerals had a seven-day mourning period. Um, there were some people that were held in higher esteem. Like, uh, if we see the example of Aaron, when Aaron died, and I believe when Moses died as well, they mourned for 30 days. I believe it was. Um, so there's a much longer period there. There's a story in Genesis 50 that you can look at if you want to. Um, of how the, the burial process for Jacob, Joseph's dad, was. Because Jacob wanted to be buried in his land. Which I believe was Canaan, but I may be wrong on that. But they were in Egypt. So Joseph had to embalm his father, which took 40 days. After those 40 days, they mourned in Egypt 70 days for him. And then after that, he took that body and traveled with his brothers. And I don't know how long that took. But then he went back to the land and buried his father there. So about half a year we're talking about here in a mourning process. Probably this man was looking at a few days. Not anything too extensive. We don't know if he was the older brother and thereby the fully responsible man to do these arrangements or not. It doesn't specify it in the Bible, so we don't know. Let's just say he was just part of the family and wanted to play his part and play his respects for his father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Hmm. So is Jesus telling him, don't take care of your responsibilities. What I'm saying now is what you have to do. Yes and no. Uh, he's not saying don't do your responsibility. He's saying, uh, what is the funeral? Who is the funeral for? Is it for your dad or is it for everybody that's suffering that he is no longer here? You that have been revived in spirit because you understand the commission I am giving you in spirit. The task that I am giving you to go preach the kingdom of heaven, which you now understand, which means you are alive in the spirit and not dead, like some of the other people you care for, in the spirit speaking. You have a new responsibility, and that responsibility supersedes anything that you do to feel better about yourself or make your family members comfortable. And this is hard to process because... Uh, especially if you come from a culture where family is everything, uh, I suggest to you that Jesus, what he's saying here is, nothing can supersede what I have given you to do, what you know in your heart. You, you can't allow some of these menial tasks to interpose themselves into what I'm telling you, because that means that you're not going to do the job that I ask you to do well. But we're talking about the burial of his father. And so that kind of creates a conflict in our hearts where we're thinking, but that's his responsibility. But again, because it doesn't really specify, if he wasn't the older brother, he was just going to be attending the ceremonies and mourning for himself for the loss of his father. It wasn't really something he was doing for his father. It was for himself and for his family. And so at that point, Jesus is just saying, you have, you have the permission, if in your heart, that is the commission that you think that you have to do, that has to be your priority. But 
I have asked you to follow me, and I have a task for you. So it's kind of a uh, uh, one of those questions that already have an answer. Uh, Jesus gave a clear command. It wasn't that this man wanted to follow him. Jesus actually asked this man to follow him because he had had some understanding, we can assume. And God wanted him to spread the kingdom news. Just, uh, I urge you to pray about these things because it sounds really easy to talk about them. But when you go into the nitty gritty, it's not as easy to think through them and elaborately discuss what Jesus is really trying to say. Because again, I was not there and, um, you know, I don't have all the answers. But that is what seems to me what Jesus is trying to say. The third one is even harder because the third one doesn't seem like something that would really disrupt what Jesus wanted to do. And let's remember, Jesus has already made up his mind that he was going, uh, said a few verses before any of this story takes place. He made up his mind to go to Jerusalem because he knew his time to die was nigh. So he has a short period of time to do what he needs done. And he can't be waiting for people to not be focused in the goals that he has. So when it comes to this third person, this man came to him and said, Lord, I will follow you, but first listen, let me go and say goodbye to my family. And this third response is one that was really difficult for me to think, how how could I possibly walk this through and make it sound, uh, give Jesus justice for what he said? Use your discernment and pray about it. But... Jesus told them, or told him, no man putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, that is a heavy blow there. And basically, if we use the analogy that Jesus is saying is, those that work on the plow are making straight lines so that the seeds could go in, and then you could do your farming process. If you're constantly looking to the side or back, you're not going to plow in a straight line, which means... You're basically useless and you're causing more work for everybody else that is working in the farming. So, you can't be distracted if I had just given you a job and you have recognized that there is a job for you because you yourself told me you are going to follow me. You have to be focused on this task that you know in your heart that that is your main purpose. And you say, well, he was just going to say goodbye to his family. We don't really know how far away the family was. Maybe they were a few days away. Maybe they were a street over. And I don't think the point was however far the family was. I think the point was that Jesus knew in this person's heart that he knew that he was supposed to follow and there was a job that he was going to do. But he was already getting distracted by the fact that he wanted to... uh, say goodbye to his family, and maybe not miss out on a few things. And he was probably thinking about all of these things. It doesn't say it in the text, but just think about it. Uh, if you've been given a mission on something, uh, and you're dedicated to something, those who are doctors, those who are full-time lawyers and have a very big position, uh, insert in the blank, people that are really into a very demanding job, or have a ministry that just requires a lot of them, they 
will miss out on family activities. If you're constantly thinking, I'm gonna miss Auntie Jay's birthday celebrity celebration thing, and uh, I won't be able to see me mobbe cookies on Christmas evening, which was such a nostalgic thing when I was growing up. That becomes a second uh, priority for you. And you no longer focus on that because you know that you have been given another responsibility. And so I don't think Jesus was saying ignore your family. He was just saying you were the one that came to me and said you were going to follow me. But then you insert a but after it and say you're going to go and say goodbye. You know what your mission is. And so this has to take priority. Because if you're constantly thinking about what you're missing out with your family, you won't be able to do the task that I'm giving you correctly. And so I I still think that this is uh something you you have to meditate on and think about. There's possibly things that I have missed and maybe I'm not doing the text justice and I pray that God has given me the eloquence to to do this fairly because I don't understand the mind of God uh but I know his character and I I I know that he wouldn't be telling these men to not take care of their responsibility. But he also had a task for them, and he didn't want them to be distracted by the other things. And each message was very personal and specific to each man, according to who he was or what he was thinking about. And we don't have all the information on those things. Uh, So I urge you to meditate on these things. Uh, if you want to read the parallel account, it's in Matthew eight nineteen to uh, verse 22, maybe. Uh, look those up and, and think about these things and evaluate what the cost of discipleship and following Jesus looks like in your life. I have a lot <laughs> to work on to uh, to call myself a true disciple. Um uh, I know surrender is a daily thing, but I know that I am lacking, and I will always be lacking. But when we do our our part in trying to discern these things and understand why Jesus was talking in this way to these men, and uh, you may or may not fully understand it, and that's okay. But as long as what you take away from today is... Jesus is not suggesting that you do not take responsibility for the things that are yours. If God has given you a calling to be an at-home, stay-at-home mom, and that is your mission right now, then you need to do that. And you are being a follower of Jesus doing that. But if you have been called to a service, to a ministry, to do certain things in your community to go and be an evangelist, to uh, be the person that speaks up at work. Uh, It can look in so many different things. To be the person that is sick, but while you're in your sickness, reaches out to try to help other people you know are hurting and are sick too and are sad. Uh, there, There are a lot of different ways in which God touches your life and tells you, hey, I want you to be doing this. And that could just look like something that you suddenly want to start doing. But you don't feel prepared to do. Uh, that has to take priority over some of the other things that you might 
call your responsibility, but it's really for you and for your comfort and because you're used to doing it or seeing it. Um, and I can't persuade you in any of that. That has to be self-evaluated. And uh, just pray about it. And I pray the Lord really uh, directs you in understanding this passage further. In summary, let's remember the main points. One, Jesus is not asking you to ignore all of your family responsibilities just because you have some sort of ministry. It is a given that those are things that you have to do if you are a parent. You can't just ignore your children because you're a missionary and you got things to do and you got people to talk to. Uh, if there is something that a problem that you caused but tomorrow you gotta go do something and oh you know I'm sorry I'm gonna go preach so you deal with the problem even though I helped caused it and I'm not gonna help you fix it that's more about your character and that is not what Jesus is telling you to do in this verse what he is saying is that you have a discernment in your heart because when you choose to follow him and you choose to follow a thing that he has placed in your heart and you know for a fact that that is something he wants you to do and then you proceed to give more priority to other things that should be second because God should be first these other things are second then there's a problem And finding a balance, that's not something I can tell you how to do that. Each person has their own situation. And it's not my job. And frankly, I'm not qualified to tell you. But you have discernment and the Holy Spirit is probably going to talk to you in a very personal manner. And help you discern, you know, how how to apply this in your life. Because everything is within moderation in the Word of God. And responsibility is responsibility. You cannot ignore that. But your first priority has to be what God has given you as his main task for you in the spiritual realm. And that could look like many different things. So I'll leave that to you and your self-evaluation. If you take anything home today, that's what we're going to think about. And yeah, think about your the cost of discipleship in your life and what that looks like. What does it look like to follow Jesus in your everyday life? And what are your priorities? Thanks for joining me. And I know this topic uh, isn't particularly comfortable and it it leaves sometimes more questions. And uh, we crave to fully understand things, but I'm thankful that you were here with me. And... Excited for you to join me next week for our next episode. Um, don't take my word for it. And remember, I am fallible, but God's word isn't. So go back to the text and meditate on what we talked about. See you next time.